on that note. <laughs> Hit the outro. Who's outro? We're not. No, we have to still segue. Still? <laughs> 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 My guy, we have a conversation and then we like Speaking of love. <laughs> Hey y'all, welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Tahat. And I'm Luther Hughes. Today we're talking to Lena Kalaf Tufaha. Lena is a poet, writer, and translator of Palestinian, Jordanian, and Syrian heritage. She is the winner of the 2016 Two Sylvia's Chapbook Prize for Arab and Newsland, and the author of Water and Salt, a book of poems from Red Hen Press, which won the 2018 Washington State Book Award. A former open books poet in residence, she currently lives in Redmond, Washington. But before we get to our conversation with Lena, we're going to answer a question from our fans. So Slim and Spineless asks, What's the deal with chat books? Honestly. <laughs> I mean, so here's my, here's my honest opinion about chat books. Um, and this is Luther speaking. Who's the only one among us at this <laughs> table who has a chat book. Honestly, it's not necessary. Um, most chat books filter easily into people's first book. Um, hmm. If you're doing a chat book, I would say, so for me, it was more so I couldn't get out uh, the project in any other way besides that chat book. And so I think of chat books as like a very focused subject. You're not doing the, the length that a full, a full length does. You're not going to go into the obsession as a full length does. So it's very specific to that one thing. And again, it's not necessary. You don't have to have a chat book. Actually, I would say most people who have a chat book can wait and put it off to get that full length. Only because, again, it's going to filter into it nicely and you want more time to really focus on those obsessions and i honestly wish i waited to be honest mm. um but i'm glad i got it out there and i can i know i wouldn't be where i am now without that chat book but if i waited like two three years different thing forget about it maybe it would be helpful really quickly to just describe what a chat book is i think True. there are people yes. out there who don't even know who don't understand is. what that is so a chat book is typically what 20 to 35 pages mm -hmm. is like the range so shorter than a full length usually published in much smaller print runs mm -hmm. like there are places that you know will only publish 75 books and they're like a very mm -hmm. special limited edition thing um there's some presses like bull city that will reprint as you run out but um that. yeah, that's yeah. Good. so that's that's the basic skinny on the chat book it's a uh, to luther's point it's like the ep yeah i love that yeah, EP, i love that comparison. Short or like film, a mixtape uh, yeah it's it like yeah it's like an intro like a, 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 a footing but like I can go on about this. Yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing a couple of things. One is that it can be a useful stepping stone mm -hmm. to the first book. So it gives you something in hand mm -hmm. that you can sell. It gives you that publication credit mm -hmm. in your bio. It feels a little legitimizing. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe useful for that. And also it sounds like you're saying there are certain projects that really can only exist in that Chapter. form. Yep. Um, maybe you've written a long poem mm -hmm. or just like a certain series of poems around a certain theme and it ends at 25 pages mm -hmm. and like that's where it stops. Can I pose also a question as a reader? What do we think of the mm -hmm. unit of chapbook? Just as like, a, do y'all read chapbooks? As like sometimes full lengths can be too long. I would say <laughs> question mark. Yes, Sometimes. absolutely. They can be. Mm -hmm. And a chat book is like, get in, get out. You say some shit, 
mm-hmm. blow my mind. I mean, like they're I'll often admit, very affordable. Exactly, Luther. Your chat book was one of my favorite like book mm. project things I Thank read this you. year. Aww, and I just think, and I'm not saying that because you're my co-host, <laughs> but truthfully, as <laughs> 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 like get in, get out, said some again like mind blowing stuff, and I was able to read it in like an hour and a half or something, and mm. it was short enough that I feel like I could sit with everything, but then return to exactly what I wanted to return to without sort of muddying the waters. Thank you. So the gag is, uh, <laughs> if, if the fourth, is, if, if the fourth ain't doing that, then that's an issue, right? So like my favorite books of their full length is because I can go back to them and I can, I can read them in an hour mm-hmm. or I can read them in like five months. Um, and so if the chat book is doing that, and I'm glad I did that for you, then it's successful. But every book should be doing that, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And so as a unit, I guess it is good for the the quick I'm on a bus reading something and I'm done with it with, by someone off the bus, right? But if that's all it's doing for you, then is it doing what it's supposed to do? You know, like if it's not, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just, I'm, I want books that I can go back to and learn from mm-hmm. constantly over and over and over. And so as a unit, I mean, it's like a it's like, it's like an EP, right? It's right. like, it's an intro to the person's work. Mm-hmm. Um, my only uh, trials and tribulations about chat books is people are doing them more so for the exposure than the actual craft of the process. Um, and so that's why I think people can and should wait um, because they're doing it for the exposure. And I think they think they have to do that to be known and to be successful. Mm-hmm. But honestly, you can wait. Everyone can, yeah, wait. You can wait. I can't believe you'd attack you me <laughs> on our own podcast. Yes, you can. With all of our friends listening. <laughs> have either of you ever read for a chat book contest before? No, but you have. I have. I've done that a few years. And I will say there is something really just like juicy and pleasing about a project that does have to be in that particular length. It's Mm. like reading a poem that has to be a sonnet. Mm. It's something that fits its form and its container in such a satisfying way, more so than just a strong collection of 20 poems, Mm. say. Um, So there, there are times when a chapbook... It does need to be a chat book. And these page links are really pretty arbitrary anyway. You know what always kills me? What I've thought the funniest thing people do? Um, they have a chat book after they have a full length. Yeah. That is so interesting <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. So it's, when it's yeah. not serving as sort of an EP or an introduction or a very first mm-hmm. book like publication, I think that really does highlight the chat book just as a form and as a container. Because why else would you be doing it if you're already a famous poet with 12 books? Um, yeah. I remember telling my friend recently. I don't think I should probably say their name. <laughs> say it. Um, no, it's don't. Justin. Ah! <laughs> but I was telling him, like, I was telling him, like, don't come out with a chat book. <laughs> you won a National Book Award, my guy. And, and mind you, you know Justin's fucking genius and so mm-hmm. anything comes out with it's going to be fucking fantastic yes um justin philip reed justin philip reed national book award, book award winner. winner um and i was just like if you come with a chat book i will boycott this show. i will call <laughs> <laughs> and only but only because because you're a true friend because only because i know you can wait like you don't have to, and you you don't have to do this but i know but also the poems that he want for Chad Book, they're fucking brilliant. And so I'm like, dang, the world should see this. But like, also. Just wait. There's so many great books coming out all the time. I think Literally. in general, you you don't have to rush as much as maybe you feel like you do. But also, I don't know. I'm always going to flip flop on this because I feel Same. like poets also need to be pushing themselves yeah. and 
risking a little bit mm-hmm. and there is value in sometimes sending stuff out before you think it's 100% ready. And mm. so I, I flip You're going to attack me too, Gabby? Jesus. I am. <laughs> out of love. Like. Speaking of love, here's a conversation with a poet we love so deeply, Lena Kalaf-Tufaha. I would love to talk a little bit about poetry and activism. I know maybe we can start a little bit with your sort of origin story and activism and then how you arrived to poetry. And I'm curious about the relationship between those two for you. I don't know that I can um, tease them apart mm. completely. So I, um, I grew up, <clears throat> my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was the Poet Laureate of Jordan. Hosni Fetis is his name. and Big shoes. Yeah. And, and that's why, like, I'm not actually writing in Arabic. So that's super intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's not his fault. Um, but, you know, it yes, big shoes. And so I grew up in a house where poetry was really important and very much par- braided into daily life and experience. Um, and also, being Arab and particularly Palestinian, my dad's side, that's just uh, lived experience is politicized. There's no way around that. So those two um, things intersect in my life and have always. So poetry is both a beautiful art form, but a means of expression. And it's a place to express what's on my mind and what matters in my life. And often that is politicized by default. Mm -hmm. It gets more complex being here and then writing in English and writing for a not exclusively Arab or Arab American audience, right? So there are all kinds of layers. Um, But I spent most of my adult life before I sort of committed to just writing poetry, doing um, what we quaintly refer to as activist work in the United States. (laughs) Quaintly. You know, I don't know that it is. I think it's just the work of citizenship, Mm, right? You're Mm -hmm. from an underrepresented group, or if you care at all about human rights, it's it's hard for me to imagine how not to do that. So I volunteered for many years for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is a civil rights group for Arab Americans. And we would do things like register people to vote who had become new citizens and didn't really know fully what that citizenship enabled them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would, um, you know, protest various U.S. wars in our neighborhood of the world. Um and all kinds of things in between. Uh, and there was a lot for me, what the service I was able to contribute often was speaking. I have an American accent, so <laughs> I can, you know, maybe articulate more clearly what someone from an older generation feels deeply and isn't being heard because mm-hmm. of how they're speaking. And, you know, that's fraught for me, so we can get back to that later. But yeah. I often found myself in that role. Um, and then after years of doing that, I, um, with some friends who had done similar, specifically media activism, decided that, you know, what's really missing is a focus on the Palestinian narrative and access for U.S. journalists, unfiltered Mm -hmm. access for U.S. journalists to really talk to real-life Palestinians and cover that story fully. Uh, And so a friend of mine and I founded an organization dedicated to just doing that, to working with U.S. journalists um, who want to cover the conflict and maybe aren't getting full access to Palestinians. And that organization is called the Institute for Middle East Understanding, IMEU. So I spent a lot of time on that. 
So here I am like avoiding poetry, avoiding poetry, avoiding poetry. <laughs> oh, you know, that's just something I do on the side for me. <laughs> and then, you know, it just wasn't enough anymore. Um, and I feel like committing to writing poetry more full time and thinking of myself as a poet, which felt very heavy and maybe, I don't know, like I went and got myself an MFA so I could feel allowed a little bit to do that. Yeah. Um, so that felt like a kind of coming full circle, finally sort of accepting what I care most deeply about. In uh, the Arabic tradition, like the poet is very much a public figure, mm -hmm. you know, and like politics and pub the the act of sort of speaking in public uh, is political and sort of inherent in that role. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's like the starting point. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I think there's sort of a fascinating conversation in American contemporary poetics about sort of the nature of public poets. Right. Um, and what is owed to the public mm -hmm. sort of once you are a poet or even claiming poet. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you had any lessons or maybe it's your, it was your hesitancy around claiming that title um, that, that we could all learn from? What, what could American mm. contemporary poetics <laughs> learn oh from? Oh my God. Um, you know, I think poetry for me is activated in the breath. Mm. Like I cannot think about it as just something that sits on a paper. I, I don't understand that. Uh, and that's definitely the bias of the tradition I come from. Um, so just if we just keep it at that level, it means that it's something that needs to be projected mm. and spoken. Uh, and and there's... Um, there's a call to action in that when you stand and speak your truth, mm -hmm. right? So <clears throat> there's a kind of responsibility, regardless of the topic, even if you're writing about something very intimate and personal and not maybe traditionally politicized. I don't know what is not politicized. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, so maybe understanding that that act of speaking, the need to say something out loud beyond the confines of your journal or your room is telling you something and mm -hmm. to just like accept that and engage with you know, all of the questions that that might um, that might bring up. Um, I also think that there's this dance we do, I, I think maybe not just in the U.S., but definitely in the U.S., there's this dance we do between the the sort of private and what we're privileged enough to think of as just our own and mm. for our enjoyment and our consumption versus, you know, what's for the public good. I, I don't trust those boundaries mm. as much, mm. uh, you know, and so uh, I would like to smash more of them. <laughs> ah! Amen. Yeah. I think so much of that divide, the people who are so staunch about privacy rights are people that it's a justification for bad behavior often, mm. right? And then there's a certain sort of ethics of being public, right? Of, of holding it up for everyone to see that sort of holds yourself to account that I'm really interested in. I think naming it is where it all comes together, that mm. sort of activism and poetry. I'm curious, at what point does audience come in then mm. for you? Yeah, that's challenging. I I don't honestly know. At some level, I think that the minute you think to write about something, an audience must be in the mix, even if the audience is the self, right? Mm -hmm. So if, I, if I've moved out of the realm of thought and I have to commit it to some form, you know, interpret that as loosely as you will, um, I'm... I'm having a conversation with someone or mm -hmm. some people or some, you know, or the self, I don't know. Um, and then, you know, progressively more and more, depending on how far you go in the process. So I don't know that I sit down necessarily often with the intention of, I'm going to write this for. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that if I moved enough to write about something, there must be a conversation I'm having 
with the self, with some larger extension. That kind of brings me to my question about people and home and how you navigate that in your poems. Um, I think I asked you before for our interview for Shadow Times that talking about home and uh, what that means to you. I'm even more curious about the idea of uh, writing kind of to an imaginary person who may or may not be the self, who may or may not be, you know, your daughters, who may or may not be uh, someone who's going to take on this kind of idea of what is politics. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious about the broader question of home for you Mm. um, and what that looks like uh, for you and how you interrogate that. Okay, so we have how many hours now? (laughs) Let's see. Um, In some ways, everything I'm writing is engaging that really beautifully articulated question. So thank you for that. Um, When I try to tell my origin story, I'm always describing how we moved back, we moved back. Like there's Mm. this constant sort of refrain in my life because um, in some ways I'm a third culture kid. Uh, So I was born in Seattle, but my parents are from other countries Mm. and then a large part of my childhood was spent in a third country Saudi Arabia Mm. and that's an Arab country but it's a very different culture and you know Mm. uh, makeup than my you know my parents homeland let's put it that way um and so we're we're there's just constant motion right and and the minute you introduce uh, a language of origin in the household you know that there's a throwing back to dance Mm. that the parents are doing so you're being told you're from here but also so home is always this place that you're both in and outside of and reaching towards and returning to and so in some ways home is perpetual motion for me Mm. and it's made me really realize sometimes that's that brings sadness and other times it just is but it's made me realize how much of writing is a process to try and get my arms around what that means today Mm. which might be Mm shape-shifting um and because of Arabic, it's very deeply braided with language. So I'm privileged to be bilingual. And I say privileged because I have children and they are not completely bilingual. Like that's actually very hard to do. Um, and some of it is because we were able to move back. So I was born here and then we moved back to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And I kind of bounced around different school systems with different primary languages and got to really be steeped in it. And the word Arab refers to people who are united by the fact that they speak the Arabic Mm -hmm. language. Like there are some countries that don't logic, like you're like, so how is, you know, there are a lot of Arab countries, right? And there's a lot of (laughs) empire and things happening that make all those places Arab countries. Um, But the unifying uh, sort of common denominator, I guess, is the language. Mm -hmm. And so the identity is deeply driven by that language. So I'm always sort of, navigating the conundrum of writing in English about an Arab self. It's a very strange Mm. fate, Um, but, you know, interesting and has allowed me to explore how language works uh, as well. And and that's a lot of what I'm writing into now and kind of my newer poems is really trying to peel back the layers of how I think about the self and language and what that means about home. I feel like this would be a really incredible time to hear you read your poem translation. Okay. Translation. She asks, why do you say mama when you call me? Six o'clock and I'm tired and making dinner right now. An Arab with a five-year-old demanding neat and tidy American answers. 
I phone it in. That's just how Arabic works. Translation is a complicated dance. Mama is the word that holds you in even when you are walking around in the world with your own name, so that calling you to me, I discard the self and respond to the name you gave me, becoming the person you made me. Mm. Mama is a time-traveling word, a song to you and to my own mother, so that whenever I reach out to you, she is there too. And calling you, I am once again the daughter, tethered to her, just as I am locked in this lifelong embrace with you. I call myself and my own mother and you, all three of us, in one breath. Moms. <laughs> so in this really beautiful poem, you describe translation as a complicated dance. And I was hoping you would talk with us a little bit about where your mind's at in regards to the topic of translation right now. And this could be in translating the work of other poets. It could be in your lived experiences of translating in real time, the way the poem sort of describes um, really anything. I know that this is a topic that you think about a lot. Mm -hmm. And so we could talk for hours, but maybe just where your mind's at right now in regards to this. I think that the translator has a really powerful position whether for poetry or just in general, right? You're the vessel. You're also the the person who gets to determine where meaning lands. Mm -hmm. It's a huge responsibility. Um, so t translation in poetry feels like the necessary impossible to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how you fully carry a poem that is so braided with sound and the textures and, um, you know, sensory experiences of a particular language and culture, how you fully carry them over into another. It's necessary, impossible. I think about all the poets I've read in translation um, that are so important to me and to my life, but I also want to recognize that in the room with us are all those translators mm -hmm. making decisions and judgments mm -hmm. about where meaning lands, that we're having a conversation, all of us together. Mm -hmm. So just at least like, I'm really interested in making sure I'm always aware of that. I can engage the art and recognize it, but understanding that I'm engaging a translation of, a version mm -hmm. of someone's set of decisions. There's a bridge that's being crossed and I wanna like feel that bridge with my bare feet yeah. as I'm walking, you know? I love that. So that's for, for poetry. But then I also am trying really hard and other, especially poets of color, have helped me learn this about myself and my own writing. I'm trying to hold myself accountable not to do too much translating in my own work. Like it would be easy to default to, let me now show you this and explain this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here translation more means explanation or mm -hmm. introduction. Yeah. Um, the explanatory comma right. referred to in journalism. I yes. And, and, you know, sort of positioning myself as even if inadvertently or with the best of intentions as some sort of introducer of instead of just really trusting the material and the art and just making the poem I need to make. Mm. Um, in some ways, I owe a massive debt of gratitude to Marwa Hilal. You know, she um, created this form, the Arabic form mm -hmm. that felt so shocking and and also completely logical and brave and she just sort of 
compressed time for me and said, you know, you can do this. Mm -hmm. And that it's not so much about the form, but what the form frees up in the poet, like really put me back in touch with myself as a writer to just sort of write about what I need and trust that the poem will figure out who its mm. audience is. Um, mm. And and that that was a, a journey because I think I was rooted just based on, you know, my age and education rooted in a tradition that didn't teach a lot of poets of color and, and had, you know, very particular sort of understandings of how you can write a poem and what counts as a poem and blah, blah, blah. And encountering her work and the work of many other really important uh, poets of color uh, and poets who are engaging this topic has helped me move out of, I hope, <laughs> out of the translating and explaining phase uh, and and just to chase after the poems that I need to write and just let that be, you know, the priority. Could you describe Marwa's poetic form mm -hmm. for us? This, this is one form that she um, innovated and she immediately invited other poets to write in it and it's called the Arabic. So you write a poem, gosh, I hope I described this correctly. Um, you write it in English, but from right to left, which is the direction that you would write in Arabic. And then there are some sort of keys that you get to unlock in the poem. So you include a letter from the Arabic alphabet in mm. Arabic print in the poem. Um, and it needs to have some sort of meaning. It needs to be engaged fully in the poem. And then um, there is, there's a kind of key to that at the end in, in a footnote. Um, and it forces you to own the, the ways in which you think and the direction that you have in the universe in a really special mm -hmm. way. And it also reminds you of the fullness of what your language is. She also teaches, I took a class online that she teaches in uh, Brooklyn called um, uh, the imagine, or what is it? Imagining the vernacular. Mm. And it's blown my mind. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm the last person to figure this out, but she really helps you think about, well, what is your, first of all, what is vernacular? You know, and is that can be a loaded term. So she yeah. unpacks all of that and, and helps you lean into like, what is your language? What is it actually made up of? Uh, and this is something I wrote about in grad school, the idea of, I called it a much less creative way. I called it expanded English. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're all bringing a vast you know, range of words and sounds and languages into English, whatever that means, mm -hmm. uh, and that and that we're presenting that, and that's part of our experience. And I think Mudwa's um, Mudwa's perspective takes it a, a step further, mm -hmm. and really encourages you to craft your own language for your poems, and not to let maybe you know a colonialist perspective or a privileged perspective dictate for you what your English is. Mm -hmm that's been incredible and has opened up places for me to write that I didn't even know existed. Mm. So yeah. somehow that. from translation to this other land that I'm in now. When I first read this poem, um, I mean, I just like, it was a punch to the gut because I had the same, my dad's Jordanian mm -hmm. and I feel like I had the same conversation with my dad asking him why he calls me Baba. Oh. Um, and I really love the way you talk about home uh, as like the sort of interlocking thing, both within and without and positioning yourself even as a translator to sort of within the middle of this chain uh and that in the single move of like calling your child this thing that you called your parent um really positions you in this really mind 
mind-boggling way to me that 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 really does put the onus back on translation right the movement Mm -hmm. right home is like movement not necessarily this place and within that for me and hearing your answer there's a lot of uh, trust and faith I think in the reader Mm. that was really rewarded when <laughs> when oh, I read it so anyway. I was hear. like, wow, wow, oh, oh my God. That's so great to hear. You know, it's interesting as we're talking, I'm reminded that so, okay, we have this reductive, and I love being Arab, but there's like, you're Arab. What does that even mean? There's mm. so many, you know, uh, variations of what that could mean. And in my particular life, my dad's Palestinian and he's from a tiny village outside of Jerusalem. So his way of speaking Arabic is a signature of that location. Mm. And even beyond a time period in that location, mm-hmm. right? And my mom's mother is from Damascus, Syria. And the way that people from Damascus speak their Syrian Arabic is different than, say, people from Aleppo. And so I have this ability, which uh, was, was sort of a source of fun uh, in childhood, but now I think about it in different ways, this ability to imitate and reproduce mm. accents and dialects yeah. really well. So if I'm speaking to someone who's Egyptian, I can mostly kind of meet them where they are and shift in and out. And what I realize I can do that I treasure now and that is relevant to poetry is that I can, um, I can evoke the signature of the person I love when they're not there. So my grandmother's Damascus Syrian, she's passed, you know, first of all, she's from a place that doesn't exist anymore. She's from a time that is gone. And she herself isn't with us. And the the lilt of her accent is a signature to an entire world, temporally, spatially. And being able to keep that and then convey it in art. Anyway. That's actual magic. Yeah. So, mm. I'm, I don't know what that's called, but that's what I'm investing in right now. Yes. <laughs> that's what I'm trying Jeez. to do is figure out how to really, you know, make art of that. Mm. I think I've, I've like so much to say now. Um, <laughs> but the idea, again, going back to um, how the idea of home and language and even uh, what I'm hearing, learning how to be comfortable in a sort of language um, that you want to kind of learn right through uh, through poetry um, and not language as in like you know English or but language as in like the the, the entire like breadth of a culture mm-hmm. um, and how that like kind of moves and like uh, you like take on that and how like Marwa's poem kind of allowed you to be comfortable in that language quote yes. quote right yeah um, and then I'm curious in, like how you're then if you're able to then teach that to your to your children right um and you feel pressured to even teach that knowing that you grew up in a household where poetry was such a big language right um and if you can even be able to begin teaching that sort of culture Mm. um or if it's necessary to teach it Mm. and how if you are doing it what ways are you doing it or if Mm -hmm. you're not doing it can I still even pick it up regardless? Yeah, gosh. Um, I'll let you know when I have those answers. But <laughs> here are my questions <laughs> in relation to your question. Yeah. <laughs> we can answer questions yeah. with questions. <laughs> Here's what I'm thinking. I have no data to prove any of it. But, you know, when my kids, I have three girls. And when they were babies, instinctively, I would just speak to them in Arabic. Like, I know you're, that's what you're supposed to do. There was no, like, it, that's just what comes out of my mouth. I see a baby, somebody else's baby, and it's going to be Arabic. And sorry, like, that's just the default. I can't. 
So I did that up until the kids started to go to whatever, daycare, preschool, and then they would come back and say things in English. And I'm an American and an English speaker and I'm bilingual. So it felt very jarring to stop and not respond and be like, no, I must speak to you only in English. So I really struggle with that. I think it would be easier if I, you know, if English wasn't also a first language or if, it, if I were less familiar with it. Um, so I, a part of me regrets that deeply. Like I wish I was more kind of, <clears throat> you know. Like only Arabic at home. Yeah, mm-hmm. if I were stricter about it. I just, but it felt, and it continues to feel like a lot to ask because there's an intimacy between parent and child, between mother and child, that maybe other people don't have this, but for me felt like it would be violated by trying to, and now we will you know, participate in this activity in this language. It just, I couldn't make myself do it all the time. So I was always sort of meeting my kids where they were. Um, and sometimes, you know, I can only say something in Arabic and, you know, now they'll tease me and make fun of me. And, you know, now I have become my parents. But um, so weird. I'm like, I was born here, you know, <laughs> such a strange headspace. But I hope that there are textures to their experience too. Like I hope that there are things that they, you know, intuit fall into the Arabic and who knows what that, like, I can't, you know, I don't know what that is for them. It might be mm-hmm. different than it, what is for me. I know that a lot of conversation around food uh, is definitely in Arabic, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of those ingredients and like all, <laughs> we have this joke about, oh God, if mom asks you for spices, are you going to know what she is talking yes. about? Oh my God. Right? <laughs> this is something. And I bet a lot of people, you know, go through this. And so I'll be like, yes, the- it took me forever to figure out yes, what Anise was. Yeah. Yes, I know. And so you just, you know, I'm like, bring the blue and they're and they sort of were like oh god which one is <laughs> and then just to troll them i wrote the names of all the spices in arabic on the oh. spice jars and i'm like figure it out so you know there is some harassment <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing but you know i i don't know i want i hope i hope it's associated with a kind of like internal knowledge and comfort and and we did you know for a while we um moved my husband took a job in jordan so that we could live there with the kids when they were young enough to maybe build some of their own memories and associations with the language and the culture that weren't just things they inherited from us Mm. um it remains to be seen what they've (laughs) kept of that so this is this is gonna make me cry this is such a difficult topic Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much of it I'm successfully or we're successfully mm-hmm. teaching. Um, but I, I hope I hope that the good stuff sticks, Yeah, I guess. You talked us through earlier the brief version of your origin story as a poet. Um, and I was hoping you would talk a little bit about the origin story of this first book, mm-hmm. Water and Salt, mm-hmm. and um, what that looked like bringing this first book of poems into the world? Um, Terrifying (laughs) and really thrilling. Um, The oldest poem, I think, in the book is the one called Intifada Portrait. Um, And it's written for my friend Ramzi, who is um, a survivor of the first Intifada in Palestine. So my, uh, my generation, like when I was in middle school and early high school in the late 80s, um, all the kids who were growing up in Palestine at the time were graduating from Israeli detention. Like, you know, schools were shut down, strike, intifada was happening, and boys and girls, but especially boys, were being rounded up just en masse, and many kids spent months and years in uh, Israeli jail. And 
that was riveting to me growing up across the river in Amman in Jordan. And, you know, this was like the nightly, we had sort of the government news station. There was like channel one and channel two, Arabic <laughs> and English, completely different reality. Um, so every night, you know, whatever, six or 7 p.m. when the news broadcast was on, it would be breaking news. And the breaking news was every night, this just amazing display of brute force, largely directed at children my age. And so... Um, Ramzi in his experience in a way is a signature of you know that time period and that's the oldest poem in the book and I think that it probably honestly the first draft of it was probably written in 1997 Mm. so you know um, I started to really think about writing into that experience in English seriously after I finished you know my undergraduate degree and then just kind of tinkered for a long time. So in some ways, this book is 10 years in the making from, you know, that maybe first poem to 2017 publication. Um, and there are many poems along the way that felt like, f- for me, in at the time when I was writing them, felt like I had to write them in order to, to live, in order to breathe. Like that was how I made sense of the world I was encountering and the contradictions that I had to navigate. Um, and it took a while for me to see that they fit together. Like I didn't set out to write a book necessarily when I started. There was a turn that was taken um, later, much later in the process. And then I spent a lot of time thinking about how things fit together. And that was an interesting and new terrain for me, you know, navigating, okay, what does it mean to, you know, because this is not like, I hate this reductive term, but like a project book. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not a particular maybe narrative thread or whatever. And so trying to think about how these poems are in conversation with one another and what is that time period. And Mm -hmm. that was an interesting and lengthy process. And I owe a massive debt of gratitude to all my mentors in um, the MFA program at Rainier Writing Workshop, who really more than anything taught me about that Um, how to think about my poems as a whole and in conversation with one another. And, you know, because I felt like I had done a lot of work figuring out how to write a poem. And you can always, of course, learn more and refine. But the idea of putting poems in conversation with one another was totally uncharted for me. To that extent, I was wondering, title-wise, how you title poems and sort of the implication of naming your whole book one poem title. Yeah, so completely terrifying. <laughs> so in the short answer. Yeah. Sing a theme. Yeah, yeah little, exactly, right? Isn't it a little <gasps> scary? Like, you, don't you have to think like, man, is this the best poem I have? <laughs> that, yeah, <laughs> right? yes, you do think that. Like you do. And I threat. went around and around and it had other titles which shall remain in the unknown. <laughs> um, because I love this one now, so we're just going to forget about those. That's but. Right. <laughs> It's a Washington State Book Award. That's right. Now. So somebody agreed. So we're just going to leave it there. <laughs> somebody likes it. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to go with it, you guys. It's been tested. Um, but I uh, I mean, I I think that I didn't have a lot of confidence about that. So I, I solicited a lot of feedback. And I, I think it's okay to admit that. Like, this mm-hmm. stuff is hard, you guys. And it, other poets are thoughtful and can maybe get outside of you know, your own work a little bit and be like, I don't know, that doesn't really sound like <laughs> So I got some help. Um, the, that particular poem, the title poem of the book, was is important to me because um, that poem is written about a hunger strike that Palestinian political prisoners went on in the summer of 2014 before the Gaza war began. Um, 
And there's something about the sound of it in Arabic that I love so much, um, water and salt. Mm. Um, and that it's in Arabic, it's water and salt, not salt and water. Mm. Like there's a, I don't know, there's a kind of, sound is really important to me. So the weight of that, the all of those things just sonically felt right to me. Um, and I hope that it's expansive enough, um, you know, to gesture at that one poem but at something much bigger and broader so that's my official answer <laughs> this might sound crazy oh, but Lord. can you actually read that poem for us i'm happy to they didn't know i was doing that okay. this is super on the spot <laughs> well here we go us improv. <laughs> water and salt behind the walls of your jails we wait Heartbeats, audible now, muffled thuds above the current of blood running thin, indigo rivulets pulsing loud beneath parchment skin, chafing and coarse like stone walls that surround us. We lie side to side. We hunger for what eating cannot feed. We carve out a sanctuary that no beating can tear down. No interrogation room scars can pierce. This is our ache. Mm. We decide how we live and if we die. We decide who gives and who takes away. Mm. We claim the freedom to turn stone into sunlight streaming through your jails, to sip water and salt like sacrament, freedom mm. to own our bodies and the land beneath them, to breathe the air on both sides of the wall, freedom to wait and wait for your checkpoints and your watchtowers to be subsumed in a crashing wave of water and salt. You never saw it coming, this cleansing, how we have become this ocean. Ah. <laughs> that, the, um, uh, the stanza with the, with the, to space the gaps <laughs> is so revealing. Yeah. Um, this, the breath after this is our ache and this, that, that pause, like to feel that ache it's so powerful yeah um and then the two stanzas that are just freedom like yeah. it's like the it's being distilled to just freedom mm -hmm. and it's like oh man and then that's like that's like water and salt like that's that's, <laughs> yeah. that's like you know the this the, the, the like insulation of yeah yes. And it's, yes it's the cleansing of the language in that moment yeah i'm really attending to all of these i sounds as well i mean mm. you were talking just now about how important sound is to you and this i i i um is so interesting to me particularly within a poem that's taking on a collective we mm. persona. Mm. Um, it's like this little voice of the poet that is haunting is the wrong word. It's um, infusing. It's doing mm. something else within the we mm. uh, sonically that I think is really beautiful. Yeah. I thought a lot about fasting when I was writing this because part of the Muslim tradition is to fast and we don't even drink water, but there's a kind of, because I was trying to think about how can I imagine what they're doing? I don't what is that even like? And the closest sort of touch I could get to was a day of fasting. And there's a there's something that happens after hunger. You cross some line, you know, and there's mm -hmm. this weird, like clear head feeling and it, it, your the whole way your body sits in the world shifts. And so I was really thinking about that. Um, as I was writing to try and access because I cannot even remotely compare to what that experience is like. Mm. <laughs>
Thank you, thank you to Lina Khalaf Taufaha for sitting down and speaking with us, reading to us in Arabic, taking me back, almost making me cry. Thank you to Open Books, a poem emporium, for letting us use their space. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button and rate us five stars. Five. No five. less than five stars. Exactly five stars. <laughs> which helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts find us because you rated it five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us your questions, your thoughts, your auntie's best mac and cheese recipe, your best literary themed cocktails, and whatever else your little heart desires to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Talk soon. Building up my fortress, stacking up the mattress. You wanna weaponize this? Gonna show you these hands, gonna take on these streets, gonna show you who's man's. Cause my crew mob steady, Feddy and spaghetti, Feddy and spaghetti, Feddy in the. Whew.